Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. So today is a day where churches all across America are having patriotic celebrations, celebrating the freedom we have as a country. Some are applauding and lauding the founding of our nation. Some churches are are singing patriotic songs, and there's not necessarily anything wrong with those things. We as Christians ought to be grateful that we live in a country where we have freedom. I'm as patriotic as anybody I think I've ever been around. I love reading about the founding of our nation. I love thinking about the values that the founders put in place. The experiment that we have politically in the United States is the greatest human experiment in political theory that I think has probably ever been tried on planet Earth. The blending of enlightenment values and biblical principles that shaped the founding of our country are things that we as Christians and Christian Americans ought to be thankful for and grateful for. Even today, more than 200 years later, we get a chance to worship in freedom in large part because of what took place 245 years ago when those who signed the Declaration of Independence put their names to a treasonous document had they lost the American War for Independence. And then uh, a number of years later in 1787 when the Constitution was written, a couple of years later in 89 when it was ratified, I mean, we, we ought to be grateful and we ought to be thankful that we live in a land where we have freedom. But as Christians looking out across the condition and circumstances of our land, while we are driven to be patriots by the history of our nation's founding, we are just as likely to be disturbed and burdened by the present condition of our nation's moral ethical, social, political, and spiritual failings. Unfortunately, as I look out across the landscape of our world, I'm desperately troubled by the way we as as Americans are living, the values we're promoting, and what we're dealing with and going through. book of Proverbs speaks to some of these things. In Proverbs 14.34... It reads, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Oh, that was written to the people of Israel who had God's law and God's word. And God expected righteousness from those he had redeemed. And in many cases, in many ways, they didn't live very righteously. Sin was a damage to those people. Another verse that we could look at would be Proverbs 14.12, repeated almost verbatim in Proverbs 16.25, it reads, There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. How many people are we watching going their own way, doing their own thing, thinking they're going about business the right way, at least according to their own values and wisdom and ideas, and yet they're going to end up in death. Another verse we could reference is an odd verse, at least odd if we remember it in the good old King James Version, where there is no vision, the people perish, Proverbs 29, 18. In the ESV version, it reads this way, and this is our text for the, the, this worship service. Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. 
According to Derek Kidner, who is a commentator in the book of uh, Proverbs, he puts it this way. He says, vision in this, ver- in this verse is to be taken in its exact sense of the revelation that a prophet receives. Law in line two, in other words, those who are blessed are those who keep the law. Law in line two is the complement to vision in line one. Therefore, the law, the prophets, and the wisdom literature meet in this verse. In many cases, in my growing up years, I had pastors, leaders, and visionaries who would take that verse and they would use it as a means to describe what leadership should look like. Leadership that doesn't cast vision means that the people are going to perish. That's the way that it was described. But really in its context and its focus, it's not about casting a vision and a direction. Really what it's about is saying without a prophetic vision, the people do what? They cast off restraint. It's not literally perish. The the word would be they run wild, they run loose. Let me give you a visual of what that looks like. That word running loose is also used in the book of Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32 is after the people of Israel have been rescued from Egypt. God destroyed the Egyptian deities in the ten plagues. He brought his people out from Egypt. They walked across the, the, uh, the Red Sea on dry land. He protected them. He defended them. He fed them in the wilderness. And he brought them to the place where he would give them the law. And while Moses was up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, the people of Israel grew weary and tired. And they came to Aaron and they said, Aaron, you know, what's going on? And why is Moses not come back? And we're going to die here standing next to the mountain. And Aaron, for whatever reason, decided he was going to build an idol, give them an image, give them something to, to look at and worship and focus on. And so he built a golden calf. It's a terrible story in the Old Testament. In fact, it's one of the most depressing moments in the entire entirety of scripture people of Israel have been rescued and within just a few short weeks of their miraculous rescue by the only God who is they had the man who was supposed to be their chief high priest turn uh, their gold and silver into an idol that they would bow down and worship and the text says that they were running loosely they were engaging in evil, wicked idolatry. It was sexual in nature. It was sinful in nature. It was idolatrous in nature. It was as if they had cast off all restraint. They were running wild and running loose. That's the image of Proverbs 29, 19. Essentially, it says this, without a prophetic revelation, biblical revelation, biblical truth, here's what people do. They throw off the restraints that are around them and they run loose and they run wild. And I'm afraid that's the country that we're living in today. John Adams said about our country, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Wonder what our founders would say if they watched the nation that we have become. We've become a nation that has not valued moral and ethical standards. We have rejected anything that has to do with biblical revelation and gone our own way. We've rejected biblical truth. We've rejected biblical righteousness. We live in a country that is, that is essentially what Alistair McIntyre describes as emotivism. 
It's the idea that moral choices are nothing more than expressions of what the choosing individual feels is right. In other words, there's no grounding principle for moral truth and moral right and moral wrong. It's essentially whatever you feel is right, whatever you'd like to do, whatever you want to be today or tomorrow, that's who you are. And where are we? I'm going to ask that question over a series of issues. Where are we? With regard to truth, we have seen philosophical ideologies reject biblical revelation. From modernism three and four hundred years ago, they grounded truth only in the hard sciences or in arithmetic or mathematics, rejecting biblical revelation as a valid means for discovering truth. We've now moved to postmodernism, where truth is not even absolute anymore, unless you're talking about your bank accounts. Truth doesn't hold any absolute standard in any value or vision, in any religious system. It's simply what a person wants it to be. With regard to truth, we have abandoned biblical revelation with absolute truth. Where are we? With regard to uh, our culture that has adopted what I would call personhood theory. It's the idea that a baby is only a valued life unless it is a baby that is wanted. A baby that is unwanted doesn't, doesn't matter and can be aborted in a womb. Personhood theory runs even deeper than that, runs into gender ideology and what we think about ourselves and who we think we are. Carl Truman, in a fantastic book that he's recently written, he described it this way. He said, 50 years ago, when a man would walk into a doctor's office and say, I am a man, or I feel like I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, the doctor would look at the particular man, and he would treat his mind. And he would recognize that there's something that's a disconnect between who he is biologically and what he thinks about himself interpersonally or intrinsically. Today, a man walks into his doctor's office and says, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, and the next course of action is to treat the body as the problem. Say that what the person thinks in his mind, so is he in all of those things, or so is she, or however a person these days wants to describe themselves based on gender and based on pronouns or whatever in the world that looks like. Personhood theory essentially says we are or we can be whoever we want to be, so much so that we're going to watch the Olympics this summer, and one of the key stories in the Olympics is going to be a transgendered athlete who was born a male uh, serving or acting in a female support. Where are we? We have abandoned biblical revelation regarding human identity. We no longer look at the Bible to discover what is true. We no longer look to science and biology to say what is right about us as humans. We've rejected biblical revelation. And guess what? We're living in a world where we have cast off restraint. We're running wild in ways that I'm not sure we can ever put that situation or the situation we're in back in any kind of box that can be controlled. Where are we? With regard to politics, in the last several years, we have seen extreme factions on both the right and left resort to anarchy, resort to anger, vitriol, name-calling, backbiting, race-baiting, whatever and whatever happens so that a particular political ideology or a political candidate can win, the end justifies the means. That's where we are with relation to politics. We have abandoned biblical revelation with regard to interpersonal interactions. I know people who used to love each other, 
who used to be able to talk together. But because they're on different sides of the political aisle, they now hate each other and hate what each other stands for. Where are we? We are living in a pluralistic age where our nation and culture have rejected biblical revelation. The truths that were formulated in the Old Testament law that were restated and proclaimed throughout the entirety of the Old Testament prophets, the truths that have been venerated by the sages in the book of Proverbs and the wisdom literature, what have we done? Those truths that were then embodied in the, by Christ in the Gospels and expounded in the New Testament, by the New Testament writers have been rejected. Jesus is no longer the person you should follow. He's a person that you might like to follow, but only when he says things that we like and that we agree with. Otherwise, he's rejected. We have abandoned biblical revelation. Where are we? We're living in an age where gang-related differences result in drive-by shootings. That happens all over our nation, from Chicago to New York to Statesville, North Carolina, just a handful of miles down the road. Somebody didn't like somebody else, drove by, shot three children. A nine-year-old lost their life because an, an interaction with somebody else spawned hate and despising of someone else's life, and a child lost their life. We have abandoned biblical revelation regarding love for their neighbor. Where are we? Folks, we're living in an age of theological and political division that undercuts the value of truth even in the life of the church. Just this week, I watched a clip of a pastor of not our denomination. Thank heavens, our denomination's had enough trouble over the last several weeks in the news media and the way we're interacting. I'm not done talking about that either. But a, a particular pastor who was standing from the pulpit preaching and vilifying or or, or valuing QAnon conspiracy theories, spouting things that were vile, that were impossible to prove, that can't happen at all, and standing in the pulpit and declaring these conspiracy theories as equal with biblical revelation from God's Word. We have abandoned biblical revelation even in some of our pulpits with our churches regarding our tone, our tenor, and the way that we understand truth. And let me tell you the danger of that. When we start equating personal opinions, and when we start equating conspiracy theories with God's Word, here's what we do. We turn people off to what is actually true. We push people away from something that can really change their lives because they look at the way we talk, some of us, some pulpits, some pastors, some churches, the way we talk and they say, that can't be what the Bible teaches. And let me tell you, it's not what the Bible teaches in many places. It's not what we need to abide by and what we need to hold standards to. But that's where we are in our contemporary culture. We're not done with the church life either. Where are we with regard to church? Some churches have adopted theological liberalism. And so instead of looking at the Bible and saying the Bible speaks truth about morality and about ethics and about sexuality, they said, no, the Bible's outdated. And we need to adjust our values or the biblical values to fit our contemporary culture. And I'm going to tell you, that's going to lead people away from God. That's where we are in our culture. Where are we? Not just in theological liberalism. So many of our churches have turned in response to the liberalism they've seen back to pharisaical legalism. 
where it's only my narrow view of every single theological issue. And if you don't hold my specific view of every single theological issue, then bless God, you can find a different place to worship. You can find a different denomination to be in. And you can go worship God wherever you want to worship God or you're really not worshiping God. You're probably going to hell because you don't see things exactly as I see things. And let me tell you something. That is what the Pharisees preached and practiced. That is not what Jesus taught. Where are we? We're also in a day and age where I have watched so many Christians who claim to be followers of Jesus exhibit a spiritual laziness that is heartbreaking and devastating. Jesus matters to them the five Sundays that they can make it to church. Jesus matters to them the 13 Sundays they can watch on on, on a day. And they're going to give up their relationship with Christ and their value of worshiping Christ for anything else that is more convenient to their schedule, to their personality, to their kids, or whatever it may be. Where are we? We are in a place, folks, where we are living out Proverbs 29 and 18 in reality. We are doing this. We are not listening to the prophetic truth of God's Word, and so we are running wild. We're running without restraint. We're off in a place that's going to experience judgment, that's going to experience God's critique, that's going to experience eventually death. There is a hope. The hope is this. Look at the second part of verse 18. But blessed is he who keeps the law. There's a faithful promise there to obtain. There's something we can look at there and find hope in. What's the contrast? When we abandon biblical revelation, we get the world we live in today. But when we keep the law, we can experience blessings. Blessed is. That that means that God is happy with the person. And the person who keeps the law is the person that experiences spiritual happiness. Spiritual grace. a, A spiritual sense of walking with God. A blessedness. That's who we want to be. Blessed is who? Is he? Is the person, the individual. And by the way, I can't make a decision for you. And you can't make a decision for me. And I'm going to invite us all when we get a chance to at the invitation this evening and the invitation this morning. I'm going to invite you to pray. And I'm going to invite you to ask God to intervene in, the, in our neighborhoods and in our nation and across our world. We're going to pray for God to move and pray for God to revive us and change us. But I'm going to tell you something. Blessed is he that's singular. Blessed is the person that is willing to say it doesn't matter what's going on out there. There. It doesn't matter what's going on in my nation. It doesn't matter what's going on in another church or another denomination or even in my own home or on my own denomination. I'm going to keep the law. I'm going to obey God. I'm going to follow Jesus. That is a choice that every single one of us has the opportunity to make. Blessed is he, is the person, is the one who is willing to do what? To keep the law. What the writer of Proverbs, Solomon, is driving us to is telling us to go back and look and say, listen, wisdom is important, but wisdom has a grounding place. What we're to do day to day, week by week, and over the next few weeks, as we continue in our series in the book of Proverbs, we're going to let Solomon speak into some of the grayer areas of the way we live our lives. 
work and marriage and, and things that the Bible talks about, but may, may not talk about every single day or every single pattern or every single interaction. But what's beautiful about what Solomon does in the book of Proverbs is he reminds us that there is a foundation point for how we live our lives. And folks, it's not what you want and it's not what I want. It's not what I think. It's not my opinion. It's not even my conviction. The foundation point of our spiritual lives is God's law. If Proverbs 29, 18 is the place where wisdom literature, law, and prophets meet, what Solomon is saying is the Bible, God's revealed word, is the place that grounds our spiritual experience. Who we are and how we're going to act and how we're going to behave. What he's saying to us is blessed is the one who keeps the law. Who obeys and fulfills what God has said and what God expects. I'm going to tell you something. We ought to keep the law. You and I ought to look back at the pages of Scripture and where God says do this, we ought to make sure we do it. And where God says don't do that, we ought to make sure we don't do that. We ought to make sure that we abide by God's standards and God's expectations. We ought to look at the Ten Commandments and line our lives up against those ten rules, ten commandments, ten expectations, ten demands that God makes of us and tells us not to be idolatrous and tells us not to be murderous and tells us not to be full of immorality and tells us not to steal. We ought to make sure our lives line up with the expectations and the characteristics that God said that we're to abide by. Oh goodness, if you go forward into the New Testament, Jesus even takes those specific commandments and he restates them and and not just at our outward behavior, aims at our inward behavior, right? He said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, don't hate your brother. I, I, I doubt I'm talking to any actual murderers in the room. But you know what? I bet I'm talking to a few of us who over the years have hated someone else because they did something we have not been able to forgive, we have not been able to turn our back on, we have not been able to let go. We're to keep the law. Say, preacher, this does not sound like a message you normally preach. You normally tell us that there's grace and there's hope and there's forgiveness and and God changes us. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Because who is it that keeps the law? I'm going to tell you something, folks. If you're sitting in the room or if you're watching on TV, I beg you to try to keep the law. I want you to open up the pages of Scripture and say, I'm going to line my life up with that teaching, that expectation, that demand. I want you to do that. In fact, God wants you to do that. Why? Because He demands perfection and righteousness. He demands absolute holiness. He demands that's what He expects. But what's going to happen when you do that? What's going to happen when you go to the Ten Commandments and you line your life up against it and you say, I'm supposed to abide by those Ten Commandments, but if we're really honest with ourselves, we could probably find a few idols on our spiritual shelves of our lives that we may not bow down to in our living rooms or in our bedrooms, but we acknowledge those idols before we acknowledge God. And by the time we're done with commandment number one, we realize we have broken commandment number one, and then you move on down the line and you think, am I still honoring my mom and dad? Have I taken the Lord's name in vain? Have I kept the Sabbath day holy? Have I honored Christ and trusted Him in the way that I handle my day-to-day business and my weekly business? How about murder or adultery or stealing or coveting or attitudes? And when we start really lining our lives up against the law of God, here's what we're going to find. We're going to look at Proverbs 29, 18, and we're going to say, Holy heavens, I cannot be blessed. Because how in the world can I be the person that keeps the law? 
There are people all throughout human history that tried to keep the law. Paul tried to keep the law. In fact, he testified in his letters. He said, I was zealous for the law. I was so zealous for the law that I was going to places all over the world and I was imprisoning people who followed Jesus Christ. Paul was zealous for the law when he headed to Damascus. And on that road to Damascus, Jesus showed up and said to him, Paul, you're kicking against the goads. You're working against my plans and my wishes. You know what God did to Paul? He showed Paul that Paul couldn't keep the law. And because Paul couldn't keep the law, he needed to meet the one who could keep the law. Paul isn't alone in his attempt to, to fulfill the law. Martin Luther tried the very same thing. Years and years as Luther served as a monk in Roman Catholicism, he was the most faithful monk to read Scripture, to confess his sins, to acknowledge to his priest, the one that was over him, I'm sorry, I've done wrong. And his confessions sometimes would last hours as he reflected on how he was not a law keeper. Till he came to that wonderful little verse that God spoke to him through the book of Habakkuk in Romans as well, the just shall live by faith. Martin Luther is not alone either. A man by the name of John Wesley, we sing some of his hymns in our, in our hymnal. A great hymn writer, a part of the first great awakening. John Wesley was preaching and teaching scripture on a boat and realized that he did not have peace of his salvation because he was looking at his salvation through the lens of religiosity. What do I do? What do I say? How do I obey God? How do I keep Scripture? How do I do all of the right things? And he met some others, some Moravians, I believe, who had a peace and a relationship with God. And John Wesley, on a boat, after having shared the good news of, well, not the good news, but the Bible, on, on a missionary journey, realized he didn't have the gospel and didn't have peace and came to be a faithful follower of Jesus because he realized he couldn't keep the law. George Whitfield's another example. One of my ministry heroes, spiritual heroes. He preached sometimes 30 and 40 times a week to thousands of people at a time during the first great awakening. He would show up outdoors and just thousands of people would come out and hear him. At times he preached to upwards of 15 or 20,000 people in one setting, pre-audiovisual capabilities. And he would preach and they would hear the gospel. But early on in his life, he believed that religion meant he did good deeds, he gave to the poor, he read the Bible, he went to church. And in a conversation and a talk with God and in opening up scriptures, God made it abundantly clear to him like God made it clear through Jesus to Nicodemus that the person who would be right with God must be born again. Blessed is the man who keeps the law. Who is the man who keeps the law? I'll tell you who the man is. It's not you and it's not me. It's the person of Jesus Christ. If you fast forward to the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said something strikingly similar to Proverbs 29, 18. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees if you are to enter in the kingdom of heaven. Solomon says, he who keeps the law is blessed. Jesus said, your righteousness must exceed 
that of the scribes and Pharisees. And I'm going to tell you some good news. When you look at the Sermon on the Mount, you see all the things Jesus says about adultery and lust, and you see the things Jesus says about murder and hate, and the things that Jesus says about truth-telling and righteousness, and the things he says about inner spirituality and not honoring ourselves. You see all those things, and you line your life up against that. Man, you are, we are flawed, and we are full of failure. We cannot keep that law. When he says in the Sermon on the Mount, doing others as you would have them doing to you, and you just think about today. Man, I've done it to others like I wanted to do to myself. I mean, I, I do what I want to feel. I do what I want to people to be happy or to make me happy. I don't always treat people like I'm supposed to treat them. We realize we're lawbreakers. That's why Jesus, when he began the Sermon on the Mount, he began with that list of Beatitudes, that wonderful list of blessed are. It's very similar to the language that's used in the book of Proverbs. But Jesus began with 5.3 where he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus didn't begin and say, Blessed are those who keep the law. He wanted us to understand unalterably that the book of Proverbs needed a future fulfillment. Blessed are the people who realize that they absolutely cannot keep the law. But they have the privilege of meeting the one who has kept the law. Blessed are the poor in spirit means that we realize we are spiritually impoverished. The word can mean spiritually bankrupt. We have nothing to offer. And I want to tell you something, folks. If you're watching on television or YouTube or, or Facebook, you're listening on the radio, you're in the worship service with us tonight, I want you to line your lives up against the law. I want you to do your very best to try to abide by the law. I want you to keep the law. If you're a parent of a child who's struggling with the, with the decision to trust Jesus, tell them to be the best person they can. Tell them they're supposed to abide by the law. Here's why we need to try to abide by the law. Because I promise you, if you try try to abide by the law, there's going to come a time and a place and a point where you realize that you are hopelessly short of God's expectation. And then here is what Jesus offers to all of us. He says, when you realize you are hopelessly short of keeping the law, if you'll realize that you are spiritually impoverished, if you'll come to me as a spiritually bankrupt soul, realizing that your righteousness is not going to get you any further, that your righteousness, if you hold on to it, is just going to be a continued rejection of the biblical revelation that God has given us, and we're going to continue to run wild and run loose. When you admit that and when you realize that, there is hope. For Jesus says, those who are poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Folks, if you're here today, and you've tried on your own to get to heaven. You've tried on your own to be right. You've tried on your own to seek the blessings of God. Now's the time for you to realize that Jesus has already done that for you. Come today admitting wholeheartedly that you are lost, that you are incomplete, that you are not perfect. And do you know what Jesus will do? He will forgive you and he will cleanse you and he will take you up as a broken-hearted, poor-in-spirit person and he will forgive and bring you into a relationship with himself. I beg of you to not go any further trying on your own to be spiritual and religious and good, but admit your spiritual bankruptcy and trust Jesus to be your Savior. I'll tell you something, folks. Those of you that are followers of Jesus, that's what our country needs. That's what our churches need. That's what our denomination needs. It needs people who are willing to get on their knees and pray to God and say, God, I'm not the solution. I can't fix what's going on in my home. I can't fix what's going on in my community. I can't fix what's going on in my neighborhood. 
I can't fix what's going on in my nation. I can't fix what's going on in my church. But I know, Lord, you're capable. I'm going to tell you the reason I referenced George Whitfield and John Wesley is because I believe that God can do something in the hearts and lives of his people in our country again. Just because the great awakenings, the two that we've experienced, have been hundreds of years ago, doesn't mean God couldn't bring one in the 2020s. Doesn't mean God couldn't work through his people and bring us to a place of repentance and confession. But that's where it begins. It begins with a recognition that we do not bring anything to God that he needs. We bring ourselves in repentance and humility and God is the one that has to act. If you need to trust Jesus to be your savior, I would ask that when we give the invitation, you come as fast as you can to put your faith in Jesus. If you're watching and you haven't turned your life over to Jesus Christ, I want you to call us, message us on Facebook, get a phone number, pray, ask God to save you and forgive you. Don't wait a moment. Get that settled today. For the rest of us, I'm going to ask you to pray. I'm going to ask you to seek God to intervene. You know you're carrying something in your family, in your community, or you know our nation needs God's intervention. The only one that can solve it is Him. Would you join me tonight? Would you join me this morning? Would you join us in prayer that God would intervene and that God would bring us to a place where we realize that we're spiritually bankrupt and we need only Him? Stand, if you will. Heavenly Father, without you, we are helpless. We are broken. And we are not enough. We pray that you would intervene in our hearts and in our lives. We pray, Father, that you would bring us to a place where we took a long, close, hard look at our own sinful situations. And we bow before you as the only one who can solve those sins, who can cleanse that unrighteousness, who can forgive us and make us right with you. I pray in this moment for my friends and my neighbors, and the kids that attend our church, the teenagers, the adults that have not yet turned their life over to you. I pray for their soul and their salvation. Pray, Lord God, that as you have done for thousands of years in cultures that speak our language and in cultures that don't, as you have convicted hearts and drawn to Sinners to salvation, I pray that in this moment you would even do that in our midst. You'd do that across our church campus. You'd do that across the living rooms and the kitchens, wherever people are watching, you would bring sinners to salvation. You'd bring sinners to a place where they admit that they're not good enough, but that you will forgive and cleanse. And Father, I pray that you'd move in our country, move in our church, I pray that you would revive us and change us and draw us to you. Lord God, let us not hold on our own sinfulness and our own unrighteousness. Let us bring our burdens and bring our nation and bring our moral rot to you as the only one who can solve the sinfulness and the wickedness and the depravity that surrounds us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. 